and welcome back to All My Darlings, where we are reading Margaret Young, Margaret Young's Angel in the Forest. I forgot that Bundy was a holiday here in the States, so no podcast. So I was, I and I toyed around with coming back in on Monday because we weren't, we had uh, just our family over, a small gathering, and everybody left and everything was real simple and stuff. But I said, oh, heck, never mind. So I'm back today, and I have another, there's another three-day weekend. I have another three-day weekend this coming up, so I won't be back until next Tuesday. But I might be able to record this Friday, so, yeah, but I know next Friday I won't. Okay, so, hey, there you go. We're uh, It's at least three. I'm pretty much good for about three or four uh, recordings a week, pretty much. I am drinking some honey tea, honey lemon, honey, sorry, honey lemon tea that a friend of mine was gracious enough to give me a whole book of tea. I should say honey lemon iced tea. And we are on page 21. The ch- and the chapter is called The Children of Israel. I would say Israel. Israel. Um, I'm feeling pretty good, so I think I won't have a problem reading this chapter. Let's see, what is it? One, two, three, four, five, at least, at least five pages, five, six pages. So, the fire and the beast of hysterical Anne Lee, the founder of the Shaker celibate communities, had been kindled in the breast of Moses at Mount Sinai. The fire in Father Rapp's breast had emanated from the same original light, evidently. Okay, so Anne Lee was the founder of Shaker. I knew I know about the Shakers, but I didn't know Anne Lee was the founder. For both Anne Lee and Father Rapp, as for many a sultry pioneer, America was a promise. Not merely of the physical conquest, but of the New Jerusalem, a city above and beyond this world of shopkeepers, marriage beds, scarecrows, and other evidences of mistaken nature. Anne was the Holy Mother, as Father Rapp was the Holy Father. Both had communities of worshipful followers, but there the resemblance ends, for the marriage of true souls admits impediment. Anne built several cities, merely by shaking like a popular tree, whose leaves are silvered in the wind. When she shook, her followers shook all ceasing to consider the where and why and whither and what of things. Many celibate communities, Anne's seems the least frostbitten, the freest from secondary aims, the most truly enthusiastic, as if no reason at all was necessary. God shaking, Anne shaking, everybody shaking. By comparison, Father Rapp's project fails both in grandeur and mysticism, becomes the acme of prudence. So, I don't know anything about the Shakers other than that they were a celibate community and they were making a This was several years back, possibly decades, um, of talking to the last uh, living shaker. Um, So that lasted a pretty long time. Father Rapp's true life and its consequences may have been a drama of which he was unaware, just as he was oblivious to God's affinity with Anne. Though Anne was the receptacle of divinity, too, and sprouted most miraculously, his father Rapp withered from the shoulders downward. His loins were girt 
with faith. He and uh, he, with his mind fixed on an internal purpose, could not afford to consider that his position was perhaps more average than eccentric. How many ambassadors of God there were, how many bearded patriarchs and lost tribes of Israel, how God had spoken out of every burning bush in that part of America which had been explored, how many new Jerusalems were being hatched, how many others were carelessly spoiled like ostrich eggs in Brazil. It was necessary that Father Rapp, like other leaders, feel his loneliness and his differentiation from an accursed mankind. In Germany he was a successful farmer, yet he would have preferred America this land of biblical promise, if he had had to live like the wild boar who eats roots. By the way, I decided to sit outside. It has been a glorious couple of weeks, just beautiful weather, just just beautiful. So I decided, ah, I need to sit outside. Um, I won't, probably. It's going to get, I have a feeling, it's going to get too hot. Um, but uh, if I can, I will, so... What you hear in the background noise is birds. <laughs> Father Rapp's cradle, Württemberg, had nurtured many clouded dreamers, many who aspired like Faust for infinite space, infinite power, and oranges in winter. He believed himself in league with God, however, and not with the devil, representative of an obtrusive and detailed reality. His imagination, all the same, did not run away with him. While influenced by Jacob Bohm and young Stilling, Ever the mystics farthest removed from this world, he liked to buy cheap and sell dear. He had both his feet on the ground. He was far divergent, for example, from another under the influence of German romantic idealism, William Blake, who saw angels swinging upside down from apple trees, who saw the antimonies of heaven and hell reversed, who saw that the fly was his little brother and chief glory of God. No such raptors for Father Rapp, the strong man, let other Germans schismatics from the Lutheran order seek other frontiers on eternity, such as Russian Tartary near the Caspian Sea, where God's snowy stars looked down, but where there were few opportunities for practical expansion. Let poets dream what they would, Father Rapp chose America first, not because he believed that God's voice would speak out of the marsh more clearly than spoken out of the vineyards in Württemberg, but because the land was fierce and cheap. Father Rapp had a Bible in one hand and an axe in the other. And thus far seems the average pioneer a far from average being, a Daniel Boone of both the infinite and finite, an adventurer. This picture, however, is deceptive. Most of the violence, unlike that of Daniel Boone or Andrew Jackson, was, or Andrew Jackson was verbal. Father Rapp's entire adventure, though posited on angelic beings, was the working out of an almost infallible machinery. Serious as were the perils attending this negative spirit, the conquest of the American wilderness could hardly have taken place without it. Factually stated, Father Rapp's saga differs from that of the average pioneer who possessed only two hands, two feet, one head, and perhaps, and a perhaps limited imagination. All too frequently, for most, millennium was an unorganized way of life, a hollow tree, but recently vacated by gregarious hornets or the grizzly bear. All too frequently, their only real estate was the ground they were buried in, if they were buried at all. Not a few were buried in the bellies of great birds. Father Rapp had untold advantages in the age of city building. He was, from the beginning, head of a corporation whose members held gilt-edged shares in the stock of a new Jerusalem, a perhaps imaginary wealth. 
This fantasy was thus public-minded. He held at his command 700 people, an unquestioning automatic body greased by the soul, as it were. 700 multiplied by two would make 1,400 hands and feet. The heads, except that they were agreed on a few fundamental assumptions, were comparatively unimportant, almost spurious. The erection of a purely negative goal made possible the avoidance of the schism. All shared, in fact, the irrationality of absolute obedience to the will of a supernatural authority, Father Rapp, who unified scattered chimeras as a theory of reality to dispose reality, and out of whose spidery beam was spun the web of possible human relations. Thus at fifty, when many men think of retiring, Father Rapp was ready, in spite of his philosophy of nature's corruption, to act as a pioneer in America, where the supposed dream would emerge as an unhooded reality, an angel in the forest. Um, this is reminding me of, we took a trip uh, to uh, Amish country. And... Um, I think I live in the state that has the most hot hummingbird. Oh, look at you. I swear this is a ruby-throated hummingbird. Um, I think I live in the state that has the most Amish. I think. So we were in Amish country, and... Um, It reminds me of, I guess, what maybe Father Rapp was doing. Except that, uh, of course, there's there's big differences, but the Amish, the Amish still thrive, um, in part because they're not celibate. They have very large families, um, and they still do. They're one of the only, I think, demographics. One of the demographics in the U.S. with a growing population. Um, but they're insular, they're secular. Um, they were, um, there's this Amish scooter that I, it's not a scooter, push bike. There's Amish, it's, it's exactly like a bike, only there's just the flat scooter part in the middle that you can step on and then I want one of those. Anyways, it was so cool. Um, we had a really good time, but there are, they are, uh, well off. I mean, the, the farms that were all around there are, are very nice, very well taken care of. Of course, they, they work a lot. Um, but, um, very well off. And there were, the thing I noticed the most is that there were solar panels on every house we saw. There were solar panels everywhere. So I thought that was very interesting. But when you think of the, the Quakers, the Shakers, and then wraps, uh, the wrap heights are pretty small. They're only found in New Harmony. There, there wasn't any branching out from there. Um, but it does, all of that kind of does tie together in a way. <sighs> Factually stated, Father Rapp's saga differs from that of the average pioneer who possess, okay, I already read this, sorry. Oh, yeah, and just think that he started this at 50. Because I can't think of starting anything in my 50s. Um, so that is rather, that is older to be going to a completely new place and starting over. So that is, 
that is, he, he must have been a very driven person. So Father Rapp, as befitted his position of exclusive power, which had been handed down from God's throne, came to America in advance of his people to choose a correct site for the community of angelic beings and butchers. In January and February 1804, he crossed the Atlantic, accompanied by his son John, who was not strong-minded, and a Mr. Haller, agent of another flock of dissenters. It was a holy mission, a renunciation of insti instinct for the sake of the future, where there would be no adversary among the lower elements. Gabriel's foghorn blew in the night, doubtless, but whatever the savage wilderness surrounding him, Father Rapid clinged to a wintry concept. That nature is an inconsequential thing, a loon, but money talks. In Germany, mapping his course by pins, Father Rapid believed Louisiana to be the farthest removed from corrupting influences, the damned majority. That sight he rejected once he realized the utter vastness of America, a continent more terrifying than infinity, a continent crisscrossed by erroneous buffalo tracks, a maze indeed, but neither biblical nor geometrical. There were few, if any, cherubim riding on lions. There were many sporadic wars. Father Rapp, a peace-loving man, dutifully explored parts of Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Ohio, a territory as yet little influenced by the aridity of rationalism. He determined on a large tract of land some 25 miles west of Pittsburgh, where it might be possible to ensure survival of the fit by trade with the unfit. God's agent must do business with the devil, even in America. Well, I might have to look this up because I'm not that far from Pittsburgh. So the place that he first landed um, actually might be quite close to me. Frederick Reichardt, Father Rapp's most faithful disciple, and yet most intelligent, had remained in Germany as shepherd to the flock of gray millennial, millennialists. So maybe they were called millennialists. Until the date of their release from materially barren pastures. They were the chosen people indeed, though few were representative of most German peasants at that time. The average German, that is, the small farmer, had turned his eyes away from the things of this earth in expectation of a city in the sun. The new religion of nationalism, so cold, so correct, so lonely, could make little appeal to a people accustomed to a more glorious thinking at a lower level. Where were God's thunderbolts, and where were the showers of locusts, and where was the promise of paradise? The king of Württemberg, a rationalist, had dismissed Father Rapp when brought to trial for preaching his strange faith in the end of the world. The Rappites, like eels with eyes and large, seemed a harmless group intent on suicide. It was their business, he thought, infringing not at all on his, and he could afford to lose them. Their crime was not evident. He believed them to be a minority, in view of the fact that the Rappites' appearance though they were, represented so many others, or at least their aspirations, it was promptly the king who was in the minority, a lost soul, a gentleman leaning on his cane like a three-legged insect, and doomed to die an insect's death when God spoke out of the saffron clouds. At any rate, he was reasonably happy. To Frederick, Father Rapp wrote a conservative estimate of the new land, as if it were, however, a beast which could be tamed. Using the funds of his congregation as instructed, he had purchased five thousand wild, lavish acres— Frederick would should urge no one to come, however, it was a long and perilous journey, without possibility of turning back once embarked upon, the worker to be divorced from the means of production in a barbarian hemisphere, where there were more boars than people as yet. Those who could not endure privation in God's name should drop out. What was needed most was courage to try the body and soul. They might have to sleep on the barge ground on the bare they might have to sleep on the bare ground at first. They would be surrounded, as in Germany, by every peril, every temptation. 
Undaunted by promised difficulties, the Chosen came, sure as of their noses, that they were united by a contract to which God himself, at a loft in Germany, had been co-signer. The great drama of change was lifting them out of an otherwise obscure existence, where each had been the victim of meaningless chance. Untold riches beckoned them. Now those who were despised and lonely, a minority in Germany, would be a majority in America, and Father Rapp, who had been a careful farmer, would be a king of kings. Did not such an endeavor in God's name deserve the sacrifice with e which each must make, even the severance with memory? Surely they would build a city of pearls, such had been promised of old." Which also reminds me of the Netflix special, if you haven't watched it, about the, uh, oh, it's an abbreviation, uh, it's a, the sect of the Mormon church that believed in polygamy and was run by this family. I had heard about it earlier where they would kick out all the boys because the older men took all the women because they, there was, you you were supposed to have as many wives, as many children as possible. So, um, we, you know, which of course that led to them. Why, why did they have to mess with the girls? Uh, was it that ended up leading them to be pedophiles? So, you know, cause that makes sense. Um, really awful stuff does happen. I remember father with father rap. So yeah, it gets, it gets bad. Um, but this also reminds me of that kind of insular kind of sect. Although in this one, of course, they're celibate. And some are forced to be. Uh, I remember that part. Uh, this is bad. This year, don't worry. We'll, well, we got a ways to go. We just started. The ships Aurora, Atlantic, and Margareta, having weathered many a rough-riding, fierce, implacable storm and waves ten feet high, docked in Philadelphia that summer of 1804. They came straggling into port. Never were there more subtle pioneers discharged on rugged shores, seekers after the golden domes of Genghis Khan, and what is more to the purpose, they would build that edifice themselves, the destruction within and the construction without. Father Rapp was down at the dock to meet them. The familiar values persisted like his beard, and nothing had changed. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. This group, moreover, would not taste of death, the sum total of all in nature but themselves, it was believed. Actually, the scriptural communism, as it was called, was not altogether miraculous, though founded on the assumption of many miracles, many escapes from the wheels of time. To transport themselves to America, the Rapite peasants had pooled their hard-earned funds, the result of sales of their property, the small farms, the wheels broken at old cisterns. In America, what uncertainties there had been in the past seemed multiplied. Organization was necessary as never before, unless the Rapites wished to perish or sink to the position of the average pioneer, a weakling with one eye out. There was a little alternative but to strengthen the bonds by which they had been united. Salt was hard to get. Besides, they were faced by the deceptive phenomena of all mortal existence, and by boundless cold immensity. At least the wolves had been metaphorical in Germany. Father Rapp acted, therefore, as a spokesman of God and of perhaps an even harder taskmaster, blind necessity. Rapites had to sleep at first on the bare ground, as had been promised. They were filled, however, with religious seal. They were not tempted. They did not forget that they were related to the most sacred characters in sacred history, like Eli among the brambles, eating a raven. For God had chosen the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. Oh, okay, so I will have to look up Harmony, Pennsylvania. I don't have my iPad with me right now, but I definitely have to look that up. At the end of the first year, Harmony, Pennsylvania had emerged, a town of 60 log houses, grist mill, 
barns, shops, houses of worship, sawmills, tannery, distillery. This was, however, civilization without its usual corruptions. The wilderness acting as an effective barrier between the rabbites and the mistaken world. There were street cleaners now, where there had been wild pigs before, and a night watchman, where the wolf had roamed, and a golden rose where the fox slept in its hole, and a church where there had been a burning bush. No flesh should glory in the presence of God, Father Rapp said. There were ample succulent crops. There were excellent horses. Within a few years, the Rappites could show a large surplus of agricultural and manufacturing products of all kinds. By fraternal love and internal unification, they had made a conquest over nature. It was a world of fugitive financiers, shopkeepers, and whoremongers. They had harnessed all the non-human elements as well as human, it seems. But if they were, wore the bit in their mouths, they did so happily as a matter of celestial habit. The Rappite location was a strategic one, the point of evacuation for the West. Man, it has been said, was impelled westward in the era of discovery with no economic necessity, but by the rotation of the earth eastward. The Rappites were not alone in strangeness. They seemed, if anything, the sanest group imaginable, at least by contrast with their competitors, many of whom were burdened with shrewish, shrewish wives and droves of half-starved children. Their productions, when so many were unreliable, were absolutely reliable. The one certitude at a port The one certitude at a port where fantasy thrived along with busy commerce in non existent townships and gunpowder. They provided shoes for energetic Americans, gunpowder unalloyed by flour, and excellent whiskey, enough to inflame the imagination of waning Eminent men, poor adventurers. To the disorganized, they represented almost the climax of moral development. They were sure of a real city, of sticks and stones, when other men had nothing but an always fading prospect. A new Jerusalem under a coonskin hat. No merely average pioneer could compete with a society of homogenous producers, united alike in life and death. This was the German prototype of American Puritanism, compelled, as were the original Founding Fathers, by a sense of persecution and innate difference from the rest of mankind. Their only affiliations were with the past. They felt the greatest correspondence between them, not themselves and others, burning like the dry thorn in the wilderness, but themselves and God, who had spoken out of the burning bush, themselves and children of Israel, themselves and Saul, David, Solomon, Job, Job's turkey, and Tobit's dog. They were aristocratic. <clears throat> they converted, consciously or unconsciously, hallucination into fact, and fact into hallucination, wherever they could. Their religion, while they grew fatter, was centered upon themselves, magnified unto eternity, as a body both male and female, which phantom seemed to them a virtue, not a vice, naturally. Their round red cheeks, their health, were deceptive. Purveyors of whiskey, they realized no connection between themselves and crimes committed by inflamed Indians or anarchic pioneers, no connection between themselves and grizzled wife-beaters. They were self-isolated. Undoubtedly, few gave a thought to the poor Indian, who was already, like natural man, a dwindling order, though no celibate, for he had more papooses than imaginary pearls or onions on a string. After all, it is easier to comprehend eternity than the multitudinous operations of that vaster complexus, the experience of man. In honesty, it must be added that before that perhaps the Rappites were more interested in their cabbages than in eternity. A bookkeeper in Pittsburgh, future Mormon, must have observed during the course of his business the Rappite order, so that there is some generic relation between the polygamists and these celibates, the former springing from the latter like Minerva from the head of Jove.
So she's also pulling together the Mormons with the rabbis. <sighs> Lots of interesting people have come out of America. In spite of dire prophecies to the contrary, with pr- pr- prosperity, with that. In spite of dire prophecies to the contrary, with prosperity had come no decline to the individual way of life. Lo, the walls of communism were strengthened. Lo, the angelic order was not sacrificed. The Rapites renewed by further contract their agreement by which they had bound themselves before immigration from Germany. They would obey unquestionably their superior officer, would give the labor of their hands, and would hold their children and their children's children, though non-existent, now and in futurity, to do the same. They would look on morality as that which transcends this world of shopkeepers. Father Rapp, in return, was to extend such education education as would tend to boast... <sighs> Father Rapp, in return, was to extend such education as would tend both to their temporal welfare and eternal felicity, and to support them and their widows alike in sickness, health, and old age, and to the world's end. It had been intended that a member withdrawing might receive a refund in the amount of his investment, or in keeping with what his character had been. This section of the contract was abrogated, however, as as comprising a tie with the mistaken world. Should anyone desire to leave this community, he must do so without reward and on his own responsibility, the dogs of hell hounding after him. In an even profounder sense did pale Jacob triumph over his brother, Red Esau. What was inconceivable to the average man happened. During a transport of religious enthusiasm, when all people seemed carried beyond the domain of their ordinary senses, where they had been considering the beauty of a ghostly erection, Father Rapp lifted his hand. Now, he said, the vow of celibacy should be taken in dead earnest, for there had been a fatal ambiguity before, with consequent embarrassment to this community and to the race of angelic beings who see not as men see. This would be broken, the last of all possible ties, with a tired world, this vow to be as a seal upon the forehead and the lips a sign of omniscience. Some of the older members, according to a report which has come down, were startled. Should all men suddenly become converted to their faith in asexual angels, walls of crystal and everlasting harmony, they realized? The earth would soon be stripped bare of people, like a deep, like a dovecote from which all the doves had flown away. Still, theirs had been a lonely bypath, a way of thorns and brambles, they realized, as if they w- had eaten ravens like Eli. Other pioneers would be trusted to beget the usual sparrow-bone children, so that the world, even if mistaken, might go on somehow. A consoling thought, at least to a few sentimentalists. Besides, all saw the light of holiness shining in Father Rapp's uplifted face, the, uh, that unusual glitter in his eye, as if he walked surrounded by stars like empty gourds where the oriole, where the oriole houses, as if he were in communion with the most distant powers. Oriole, I saw a gray catbird. I reckon I saw a gray catbird uh, today. Just singing away. It was so cool. I hope I see an Oriole this, this year, too. The fact that all were to share in the deprival of the flesh for the sake of the spirit made the burden only easier. None should escape. They were indebted to Father Rapp, they knew. Had he not delivered them out of the mouth of the lion... Had he not brought them into a marvelous land like Lebanon, where the eagle is perched upon the topmost branch of the cedar? There was great rejoicing as his rafters shook, 
old and young men, old and young women, many 14-year-olds, all leaped and shouted, and the young shouted louder than the old. Perhaps most of these good people did not think at all, since sudden emotion is a more powerful agent than prolonged logic. There was, however, a sadly dissenting voice, a worm in the green wheat, and lo, the worm lifted up its head, for it was a cosmic dust. Father Rapp's son, John, still in the prime of his manhood, could not accept so readily the attitude of self-imposed sterility. He had his wife with him, whose those limbs he had already clasped, that breast like honey and mead, that immediate sense of her personal goodness, nothing more wonderful to him than thousands of angels shouting hallelujahs. She was life, John thought. Many months after the agreement on a universal celibacy, a strange thing happened. John's wife began to swell out like the yeast of bread. It became impossible by any subterfuge to conceal a condition under the immense skirts and draperies of shawls. The woman was with child. Acknowledgement of secret sin was made glaringly public by every slow movement and wandering gesture, by the eyes dilated by the breath coming short. She felt her shame that she was Jezebel, that she was the whore of Babylon who had walked with cymbals and tinkling bells. Indeed, she was the world's disaster. People stared at her, unbelieving, for this was a greater crime than to steal a little sugar. John, far from being cautious, was triumphant openly, as if he had struggled with an angel and had come out with no part of his thigh missing. He had established obscurely, it is true, a union between himself and the moths, which were not motivated by the idea of God. He walked on a cloud, and he whistled like a mockingbird. He was happy, the poor fool. He had seen a droplet of milk on that fair breast. His wife, however, more melancholy as her time advanced, could hardly stoop to lift the turnips from the fields. The third part of the moon was already dark, and she was going down the sky with the third part of the moon. Her crime had brought its punishment. John, persisting in his ecstasy, thus differentiated himself from all the ghostly others, including his wife, who was not a tactful winner in the game of life, but boastful. It was, an embarrassing it was an embarrassing situation for the vice-regent of the deity, the ambassador of God on earth, his own son, a father. What was more, there seemed to be a, no indication that John would ever desert his wife, for night after night he went into her. Was there to be an exception, an ignoring of the prohibition placed upon a depraved natural instinct by which the individual withdrew himself from the residue of divine truth? Was at least one critic to stand outside the community with a cynic's leering snare, sneer? Oh, I'm going over time. Okay, I'm almost done. Um, we got a page and a quarter here. Men who were, after all, merely human complained of the immense injustice. They had been temperate as cabbages, and what was the result? Father Rapp determined sadly that the malcreant must be punished. So Abraham would have sacrificed Isaac, was it not so? Had not an angel of the Lord intervened? Community must be preserved at any cost to the finite destiny of finite man. It would be like taking down the strap from its nail on the wall. He had beaten his son before as a training for manhood. The evil part must be removed. Nakedness, a groveling, a howling, a mute repentance as the body learns its master, self-mastery, Better to strike at evil than let evil fester. Unfortunately, this was no flogging, but emasculation, and the victim died, crying like a stuck pig somewhere in the neighborhood of the piggery. Okay, so they, uh, they, um, uh, what do they call it? I guess they tried to turn his son into a eunuch, and, uh, 
and failed. He died. More than one murder had taken place undiscovered in the dense American wilderness. More than one man, it is recorded, had set out on a journey from which he had not returned, and no inquiries had been made, there being a gap between the man who departed and the man who arrived, and an impossibility of communication at such extremes in time and space. More than one had been swallowed up by the wilderness, a disembodied head in a burlap sack of corn shucks, like the head of John the Baptist, a headless body weighted down by stones in a distant river, nobody caring. As rapites were isolated in their own police, it seemed that a veil might be drawn across the macabre scene. After all, as so often happens, the only eyewitnesses to this murder were the murderers. Rumor got out, however, that Father Rapp had killed his only son. There was just a little trickle of blood, and then there was a dead body. It was a tale told in all the taverns, both in America and Germany, how the old man had imposed his will upon his people. Half a century later, the Atlantic Monthly carried a few hints as to what had happened. Nothing was ever said as to the fate of the widow, whether her skull and palms were cast upon the turnip fields or what became of her. Beyond doubt, an infant daughter survived the experiment and grew to robust womanhood with a certain twinkling laughter in her eyes. The death of John Rapp had at least the virtue that it marked an had at least the, the virtue that it marked an impasse and turning point on the road of repite history. Now, in 1814, Father Rapp was ready to abandon Harmony in favor of a second enterprise, much like the first, to move on like Daniel Boone seeking elbow room. A flawless opportunity, a magnet drawing the compass, thousands of people turning toward the sunset, and among these, the oriental despot, Father Rapp, manufacturer of whiskey, an illusion. The Rappite property was sold, in short, to a man named Zeigler for $100,000, a great sacrifice, although it represented $85,000 profit over the original investment. Zeigler, by the way, had no notions as to the extinction of the human race by mutilation or millennium. He put up for rent signs everywhere and opened a puppet show where little men danced on strings and all their activities seemed the effect of invisible spiritual powers. Yeah. So nothing like believing uh, you are the mouth of God and you need to castrate... There, that's the word I'm looking for. You need to castrate your own son in order to make that happen. Uh, we do crazy, crazy, crazy things here. All right. Thank you for listening. I ran a little bit long, but... Um, yeah, the chapters, I think the chapters are about that long or shorter. Something like that. All right. Anyways, thank you for listening. Bye.